Lord, thank you for our time to sing. We give you thanks for the word that we can gather around now, and we pray that you would open up our eyes by your spirit, open up our spiritual eyes, open up our spiritual ears to both see and hear your word, and for it to be heavy upon our hearts, heavy in a right way, so that our eyes would be turned to you and that we would see your glory as we've sung about, as we've prayed about. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So several decades ago, um, a question was posed by a Presbyterian church down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, that goes something like this. If you were to stand before God and he were to ask, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Now, the point of the question is obvious. It's supposed to make us think about what or whom we are trusting in for salvation. And the Gospel of Mark has been giving us the answer to that question week after week by raising up Jesus in front of us with so many words saying, trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Very first verse in Mark, we're introduced to who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And this Christ, the Son of God, the one who comes and brings deliverance, has a message in chapter 1, verse 15, says the time is fulfilled, Jesus is speaking here, and he's saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then for the next several chapters, Jesus goes on throughout the region of Galilee, carrying out miracles, testifying that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he's sharing the truth about himself and about salvation being found in himself. As he approaches Jerusalem from the north now down to the south, he pulls his disciples aside, and on three separate occasions, he tells them the reason for why he's going into Jerusalem. He tells them in Mark 8 and Mark 9, and then the last one in Mark chapter 10, verse 33. He tells his disciples, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will arise. So he arrives in Jerusalem with crowds of people that have seen his miracles and have heard his teaching. They're attracted to him and they believe that he is the Messiah that Mark 1 has spoken about. They believe that he is going to come into Jerusalem and sit on the throne of David there and begin an earthly reign that would usher in a physical kingdom. So Jesus goes to the temple. It's the home turf. It's the den of the religious leaders. And he started teaching there. And more crowds began to follow him. And this became a serious problem for the religious leaders in just a few days. They're envious of him as they see their crowds leaving them and following Jesus. So they can't let this carpenter from Nazareth rise up and take their crowds. They devised a plan to put him to death. This plan was known to Jesus. He knew it because he knew the Old Testament scriptures. He knew, as we read earlier from Psalm 2, that the nations would rage and the peoples would plot in vain. 
He knew from Isaiah 53 that he had to die in order to provide atonement for sins. And so on Thursday evening, he took the disciples out of Jerusalem, down across the Kidron Valley, and up onto the Mount of Olives to an area called the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew he had to go to the cross, and there he prayed under the cover of night and completely surrendered his will to the Father by saying this. He said, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And with that prayer, he was completely surrendered to the plan for salvation. A little bit later, in the garden, a group of soldiers were led by Judas, his own disciple, who was a sellout for 30 pieces of silver, to lead these soldiers into the Garden of Gethsemane to identify Jesus at night. Jesus was seized at that moment and led back across the valley into Jerusalem to Caiaphas's house where a group of religious leaders that functioned as a court, this is called the Sanhedrin, accused Jesus of blasphemy because he rightly attributed Old Testament texts to himself. What were those texts? Psalm 110, verse 1, which says, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father. And that passage goes on to say that all of his enemies will be defeated. Also, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where he said of himself that the Son of Man is coming with the clouds of heaven. And this Son of Man was to receive the nations as his inheritance. And Jesus told the religious leaders who believed in those passages, the fulfillment of those passages is me. And they just blew a cork. They condemned him to death. And for their death sentence, they didn't have the authority as Jews to put people to death. They needed the Roman government to do it. So they go back to the person who's most likely to give a death sentence and that's Pilate. Pilate's the governor, the prefect of this area of Palestine. And by the time that Pilate sees him, the Jews have already rendered their verdict that he needs to be put to death because of blasphemy. But when Pilate hears the charges, he says, I don't see anything in him worthy of death. And yet the crowds pressed in and the religious leaders pressed in. Pilate didn't want a riot on his hands, and so he, he surrenders. He gives Jesus over to the Jews now to be put to death. I said last week that he was whipped 39 times. That's specifically not in the Gospels, but it's given in other places in Scripture that would lead us to believe he was whipped 39 times. The soldiers began punching him, spitting on him. And so by the time we come up to our passage this morning, Jesus has gone through the evening. He's been unjustly tried by the religious leaders. He's been beaten and whipped by soldiers, and he's been wrongfully sentenced to death by Pilate. And that's where we pick up the passage for our study this morning. There's three points to the sermon this morning. This morning, I'll give those points to you as we go through the story. 
The first point in verses 16 through 20 is simply Jesus, the mocked king. It's Jesus, the mocked king. It says now in verse 16 that the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. This is probably Herod's palace. Pilate has reached his decision about Jesus being crucified. And it says in the end, at the end of verse 16 that they called together a whole battalion. A battalion is made up of up to 600 people, 600 soldiers. You look around this room, and there might be 300 in here. I don't know. So 300, multiply that times two. Every place in here is pretty much filled up, and it's all for one man. Why so many soldiers for just one man? Well, it's because of Jesus' popularity up to this point in the week. Morning has come. And this is going to be headline news in Jerusalem that Jesus, the Messiah who's garnered so much attention from the north, who's come into Jerusalem, is going to be crucified today. Perhaps Herod or Pilate is thinking that there will be some resistance, some zealots who would come to his defense. So here's 600 soldiers who are going to walk Jesus through the streets, perhaps tight streets, four soldiers, shoulder to shoulder, Long column out in front, Jesus in the middle, a long column behind. Before they leave the palace, these 600 soldiers, which are in proximity to Jesus, unleash a litany of cruel mockery. There's nine steps, eight that Mark gives, but I'm going to throw another one in from Matthew. These nine steps, these 600 soldiers, first they strip him of his clothes And give him a garment of purple. Purple was an expensive dye that symbolized royalty. And when Pilate had asked Jesus the question, you're the king of the Jews? Jesus had responded positively saying, you've said it. And now the soldiers are going to have a time of mockery. So first they strip him of clothes and they find a purple garment to put on him. Second, the soldiers mocked Jesus by putting a crown upon his head, and this crown is made out of thorns. The acanthus plant would have had these sharp prickles, these sharp thorns, and the soldiers twisted up that vine or that branch of acanthus and put that on his head in front of all of the soldiers. In Matthew's gospel, we're told that the soldiers grabbed a reed or something like bamboo and fixed it or placed it in his hand. And that reed is supposed to symbolize a king's scepter. So now you have the image of purple robe, a crown, and a scepter in his hand. And with the soldiers around him, step four, they start to have their cruel fun by saluting him. And the Roman salute was more than likely like the Nazi salute, one hand out like this. And they're saying to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Mockery of Jesus and, of course, the Jews whom they despised. Here's your king. In verse 19, with a group of soldiers around him, keep in mind he's been punched already throughout the night. We saw that at the end of chapter 14. They begin striking his head with these reeds. So it's total mockery of a king who can't defend himself. Sixth, Mark says that they are spitting on him. And I can't help but think that many of these soldiers had come through the night, not with the greatest of hygiene. 
Seventh, they begin kneeling down, and some are paying sarcastic homage to Jesus. In verse 20, it says that eighthly, they mocked Jesus. They stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes back on him. And then ninth, it says that they led him out of the palace to crucify him. So from the religious leaders who were part of the Sanhedrin, who were just screaming with rage, to Pilate, to now the soldiers, you can't help but notice this antagonism, this opposition to Jesus. Some are filled with anger. Others are filled with mockery. And this is what we saw earlier when we read Psalm 2 during the service. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Sometime later in Acts 4, the apostle Peter was freed or let out from prison, and he looks back to this event, and in Acts 4, he says of Psalm 2, he says, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then he goes on to say that it was fulfilled by Herod, Pilate, and the people of Israel. The Gentiles and the nations raging against Jesus that night. Mocking the true king as though he is a fool and a criminal deserving of punishment. Now what would Jesus have been leaning into? He's prayed, Father, not my will but yours be done. The prophet Isaiah gives us these words in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 5 through 8. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. These are words that match Jesus' experience. And I can't help but think that this was his prayer while he was going through this time of torture and this time of brutality, feeling the physical nature of crucifixion, feeling the spit on his face, the beard being plucked out. What was his answer? The Lord helps me. It's the Lord who vindicates me. As I was working through this, seeing so many of the themes that are overlapping from the Old Testament into Jesus' life, this thought keeps coming through that it's the Lord, it's the Father who helps us go through our trials. As we follow Jesus, the one who went through the crucifixion, he is the one who shows us what it looks like. Lean into the Father. The Father is the one who helps and with his will completely surrendered to the Father, you know that he's dependent upon him. My mind then just went one step further, especially to our young people. As Jesus is facing the mockery and enduring mockery, he knows what it's like to be abandoned by people. He knows what it's like to be made the fool, young people. Even going one step further than what I think most of us have felt, the splat of the spit, the slime on his face, the words that were just being spoken loudly, the punches, the slaps, the cheap shots, they're all forms of rejection and mockery. 
Jesus knows what it's like to be on the receiving end and being made the fool. And yet he endured because he knew that his father would help, that his father would vindicate him. He knew that his father would see all things and eventually declare Jesus to be right. And here is our Savior as we go into another week. As you might be brushing up against possible forms of mockery, I want to encourage you that it's not going to be necessarily possible to change your circumstances. But what takes place is the change of mind. And as Jesus shows us with these forecasted words from Isaiah 50, we're trusting in the Father. We're trusting in God to vindicate us. We're trusting in him to help us. This is Jesus, the mocked king. So Mark continues to move along quickly. We know that day has dawned. It's a time for the soldiers to escort Jesus to the crucifixion site. So we move on to point number two, which is now Jesus, the crucified king. Jesus, the crucified king. Under Roman law, um, crucifixion could take place. The charged criminal who was to be crucified, was to carry a crossbeam on his shoulders through the streets to the execution site. And the crowds could easily see that this person had been defeated, been dominated by Rome, been subjugated, and is now under their judgment. The crossbeam is a symbol of death. This person is done with their lives. He is going out to his places of death. And so you can remember Jesus' words from Mark 8, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You can see Jesus going through the streets, going to his place of death, and then we can see ourselves saying, okay, Jesus, I'm following you. I'm willing to die to myself. I'm surrendered to the Father's will. I'm going to follow you. Here's Jesus making his way through the streets. He's carrying his cross, which would have been a beam of wood, And scholars estimate that it would have been weighing approximately 75 to 100 pounds. We're not sure if Jesus tripped on the road, if he fell, or if it's obvious that he just can't go any further from the beatings that he's taken, the whippings that he's had the night before. So the soldiers who are escorting him, they commandeer a man named Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is in North Africa. And so Simon is either in town from North Africa and visiting for Passover, or he hails from North Africa and he's given this identity, and just so that we know he is that individual. At any rate, he's known as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, the Gospel of Mark, we believe, was originally delivered to the church at Rome. And in Romans 16, verse 13, we read of Rufus. Paul says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. And so it's quite possible that the original recipients of this letter, Rufus would have been in that congregation. And if that's him, folks would know, ah, it's his father who carried Jesus' cross through the streets of Jerusalem out to the crucifixion site. So here's Simon carrying the cross. In verse 22, we read that the soldiers brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. Over the centuries, 
The Latin word Calvary was employed. It means scalp or bald head. And so this place where Jesus is taken is outside of the city walls, and the contour of the land, the formation of the rock, must be somewhat bald. It resembles a skull. It has all the smacks of death. In verse 23, as they're moving that direction, we're told that they offered Jesus a wine that's mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This wine that's mixed with myrrh, it was basically a narcotic to dull the pain, to help him get there. Matthew's gospel says that he tasted it, but then did not drink it. He spit it out. Psalm 69, verse 21 says, And for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Why would Jesus have refused this? There are some fringe groups who have said, Since Jesus refused a narcotic, we should refuse medicine and any helps. But that's not why Jesus refused this. You remember at that Last Supper, he told the disciples, I will not drink of the cup until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So he refuses it. You know that he's feeling all of the physical pain up to this point. So then in verse 24, the text continues on, and it says that they crucified him. Now, as I mentioned earlier, crucifixion, we don't see it today, at least in the Western world. It is a brutal form of capital punishment. Um, for those of you who are younger, capital punishment means you're being put to death. Cicero, a Roman statesman, a lawyer, a philosopher, had written decades before in maybe around 70 AD. He said the very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. It was, it was just an atrocious sight. And yet it was a common Roman practice up to this point. In the year 71 BC, Spartacus, you've heard that name before, his group of rebel slaves had led an effective, somewhat effective rebellion against the Roman Empire. They caused their problems, but eventually they were crushed, and Spartacus and 6,000 slaves were taken captive, and they were crucified. Each of the 6,000 were crucified along the Appian Way. So people would walk this 120-mile journey and 6,000 individuals were hung on crosses. That's 50 for every mile. And the idea was that if you defy Rome, this is what happens to you. Crucifixion was the public electric chair. It was the public shooting squad. Everybody could see it. There were three forms of crosses during this time. There was an X-shaped cross where the person's four limbs were each attached to a post. There was a capital T cross, and then there was a cross in the shape of a lower T. And Jesus, we believe, was on the cross of a lower case T, because the inscription, King of the Jews, according to Matthew's gospel, was nailed above his head. Those who were going through crucifixion had been previously beaten and bloodied up in order to speed up the rate of death. The vertical beam was placed on the ground. The cross beam that the criminal had carried was now delivered to the site and placed across the vertical beam. 
And the person would have been laid down on the cross. Now, some archaeological digs suggest that the legs were straddled on either side of the cross, and then each foot would have received a nail that went through the heel bone into the vertical beam. Others say that the feet were put over top of one another and that they were pinned together with a nail going through the both of them, the toes being given a little platform right underneath of them to have some sort of leverage to stand up on. One author said that the private parts of a person could be impaled. By now, the person is laying on the beam and the hands would have been tied to the cross beam with a rope. The hands themselves then would have been punctured by a nail. And at this point, the criminal was either completely naked or barely covered with a cloth. And the cross would have been lifted up with a hole that was dug in the ground and then lowered down forcefully into the hole so that the body would have felt the shock. Now from there, depending on the severity of the beatings and the constitution of a person's body, that individual could be suspended up in the air for either several hours before they died or several days. And often the cause of death would be asphyxiation because the the hanging would take its toll on the lungs and you wouldn't get enough oxygen. Other times it could be just shock or blood loss. And so in your mind, you can see Jesus there having been bloodied up, of course, with the crown still on his head. He has been whipped, and it's just a barbaric scene of humiliation. Verse 24 says that they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Again, this is talked about in Scripture. Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Why would people want Jesus' bloodied up clothing? Well, just a couple chapters earlier, and just a couple days earlier, we had read that Jesus was in a house, and a woman had opened up a very costly, very expensive flask of perfume and anointed his whole body with it. Perfume, fragrance, being a luxury in that day, perhaps some would have taken that home, put it in a bowl, put it on their mantle, and just allowed that to be a fragrance in their room. Verse 25 As Jesus is on the cross, we're told that it was the third hour. The third hour is 9 o'clock because the Jewish day starts at 6 o'clock in the morning. So by 9 o'clock, Jesus is lifted up in the air. And as we continue to stare at the scene in Mark, there are two more details that come up for us in verses 26 and 27. First, the cause of the crucifixion, as I mentioned earlier, had to be affixed to the cross. So there is a sign on Jesus' cross up above him that says the king of the Jews. And the Jews didn't want this to be written. They wanted it to say he said he was king of the Jews. 
But the Romans wouldn't allow that. They wanted to stick another finger in the Jews' eyes by saying, this is your king. In verse 27, we zoom back from the scene. And on either side of Jesus, there are two robbers, one on his right, and then there's one on his left. Now, as you take that scene in, do you remember when Jesus was walking with his disciples? And James and John came up to him and asked him, Teacher, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And you might remember Jesus' statement. He said, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? And this is what he's talking about. If you want to follow me, do you really want to be on my right and left? Because those crosses would have been for James and John. Instead, it's Jesus among the criminals. It's Jesus among the thieves. And again, we see this from the Old Testament scriptures, Isaiah 53, verse 12. He poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Here's Jesus being labeled as a transgressor on the cross, surrendered to the will of the Father, and it will be, as we see next week, his time to bear the sins of many. And yet, we have to keep in mind, this is the path that Jesus must take in order to accomplish salvation for his people. He has to be a lamb that is slaughtered. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, there was always a sacrifice for sin. Death had to happen because of God's holiness. And so in Romans 6, we can read, the wages of sin is death. So who's going to die for our sin? It's going to be Jesus. And here is Jesus, the sinless one, going to the cross and dying as the last lamb. We move to point number three. Jesus, the blasphemed king. Jesus, the blasphemed king. There are three groups of people who blaspheme Jesus, who are hurling insults at him. In verse 29, it says that those who passed by, uh, meaning those who are going into, into the city, perhaps pilgrims who are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, perhaps those from local areas like Bethany who are, are coming in to offer a sacrifice. It says that they come in, in verse 29, those who pass by derided him, and that term for deride in the Greek language is simply blaspheme. They're hurling these insults at him. And they're wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, that was the statement that they said Jesus had spoken. That's not what Jesus said. He said, destroy this temple, speaking of himself, and in three days it will rise. But notice what they want Jesus to do. They say, save yourself and come down from the cross. In other words, the test for Jesus being their Messiah is his ability to now free himself and come down off the cross. This is a theme that continues among those who are at the cross. But I want you to see another Old Testament text, Psalm 22, verses 6 and 7. But I am a worm and not a man, 
scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their head. The irony here is that the folks passing by are determining that Jesus is going to be a successful Messiah. His ministry will be a success if he comes down from the cross. It's not just them, though. It's the religious leaders you see in verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. The litmus test for their belief is that they have to see Jesus do something great. They've seen, some have seen Jesus perform miracles, but they want to see him meet their expectations of what a leader should be. They want to see something flashy from Jesus. And they're going to get it in three days. But for now, Jesus is going to stay on the cross. Verse 32, second half. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So the two thieves on either side, there's more to that in Luke chapter 23. But the gist of what they are saying in Luke chapter 23 is this. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So all three people, the crowds who are coming by, the chief priests and the scribes, and the thieves on the cross all have one consistent message. If you're the Messiah, show us by saving yourself. But what Mark is showing us is that Jesus is the deliverer. He is the Christ who brings salvation. And he's the one who brings salvation by staying on the cross, not by coming down. We have seen his miracle works from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem where with just a word, he can calm the sea. With just a word, he can cast out demons. With just a word, he can heal leprosy. Jesus can come down from the cross. But it's even greater strength for Jesus to stay on the cross. And this is the Messiahship of Jesus, that he's staying there. This is Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when we come to the end of this chapter, it's just a scene for us that sets up next week and then the following week as well. It's a scene of Jesus enduring of Jesus being steadfast, of him enduring the cross and the shame that comes with it. Why? Because this is how he saves. And so for us as followers of Jesus, we come here to this cross and we don't have to walk away with three, okay, go and do these things. We have to walk away and say, thank you, Jesus, for staying on the cross. I just want to close this sermon this morning with the lyrics from an old hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. O Sacred Head Now Wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns thine only crown. How pale thou art in anguish, with sore abuse and scorn, how does that visage languish 
which once was bright as morn. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners' gain. O mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor, vouchsafe to me thy grace. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend? For this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. O make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. So we started the sermon with a question. And the question was, if we were to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? As we come through Mark 15, Mark is leading us along and saying, there's nothing that we did. The only thing that we contributed to our salvation, as one once said, was our sin. It's Jesus who is staying on the cross for us. As next week we'll see that he's taking the judgment that we deserved. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for your provision for us in Christ. We thank you for giving us this scene that we just need to take in. We're supposed to see this. We're supposed to know how your son was crucified. And so we thank you for giving this to us. I pray that as we go from here that we will see the Son of Man on the cross lifted up, that we will see his willingness to die having surrendered his will to you. And Lord, as we come back next week, we see the judgment that's poured out on a spiritual level. And so God, please help us not to take the cross lightly, but to take Jesus' death in thanks and to be sobered by it and to reflect on it in such a way that truly brings us to a place of humility that Christ would love us and give himself for us. So we ask for your help in these things to be honoring to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.